day in which we as a church and as a people of redeemed saints celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. We celebrate this day because in the resurrection He has gained us life. But one of the things that's true about the resurrection is that Jesus could never raise from the dead unless He first died upon the cross. And everything that Jesus accomplished for us in His resurrection, He really accomplished it because of the cross of Christ. And through faith in the complete work of Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection, we have forgiveness of sins. And through faith in Christ's death for us, we have peace with God. We are made right with God. And in this, we rejoice. And every blessing that we have, as Christians, believers in Christ, really comes, comes through the resurrection because of everything that Jesus accomplished on the cross. And for my message this morning, I, I really want for us to, to focus upon the blessings that we have because of the cross of Christ. It's all vindicated in His resurrection. And His blessings to us are many. And, and I trust today that you will, you will see that. You know, one of the things that has... Um, it's really amazed me through the years. It is how the how many things are communicated through the the cross of Christ. See, when God accomplished what took place for us at Calvary, He used many different metaphors to describe it because there's not just one thing that can describe what took place on the cross. There was redemption upon the cross. Right? When Jesus died, He was paying a price. There was appeasement upon the cross. When Jesus died upon the cross, He was appeasing the wrath of the Father. There was a declaration upon the cross. God declared us righteous through faith in Jesus. There was a reconciliation that took place in the cross. We who are God's enemies have now become united in Him and become His, His friends. And this morning, what I want to do is look at the cross from from many different angles, actually from four different angles particularly. There's these four different metaphors God uses to tell us of what He accomplished for us in in the cross. Four different pictures, if you will, of what the cross means. And and my my aim of my message this morning is just to, to, to expand what took place at Calvary in your minds. So, you know, some of us can be, can be one-dimensional a little bit into thinking the cross is all about forgiveness. Yes, it is about forgiveness, but there, there's way more that took place than merely that. The cross isn't one-dimensional. It is multifaceted. Down through the ages, theologians have run into the error because they have just taken one aspect of, of the cross, say, as ransom, and have really focused all upon the ransom that Jesus paid to the exclusion of everything else, and they've run into error, not, not taking the full orb of the cross into consideration. And so I want us today to see the splendor of the cross in all its majesty. My message this morning is going to be a different, bit different than most messages. I usually have you open your Bible, stick to one text, kind of take that text, dig into it, pull up great riches from it, apply it to us. My message this morning, though, is going to be flat out topical and really focus upon um, different pictures of the cross. And, and my message also this morning is going to be a lot different. Than that. I'm going to take some great lengths with, with illustrations and with stories that just try to illustrate just the great facets of, of the cross, of what took place when Jesus died and rose again. 
My message this morning is entitled, Pictures of the Cross. The first picture I want us to look upon, the first metaphor, the first image, is called Justification. Justification. And for this, I want to take you into the courtroom. I want you to imagine yourself in a, in a state building where a courtroom is. Picture, if you will, a judge upon his rostrum, wherever he sits. You, you turn to the right, turn to the left, and you see the jury there seated on the side who are going to hear your case. After the testimony comes in, they will exit through that door into the deliberation room. When they come out, they're going to hand a verdict to the bailiff. They will then hand it to the judge, and one of two things will happen. Either be innocent of all wrongdoing, or you'll be declared guilty as charged. And depending on the verdict rendered, you either go free, or you pay the penalty for your crime. So your details now come before the judge and jury. You're in the wrong place at the wrong time. For some reason or another, you're holding a gun. You can't explain. You don't remember why. But for some reason, you pulled the trigger and the bullet that came out of that gun struck someone in the head and they died. You stand before the judge and jury. They hear the case. Prosecuting. Attorney brings his case. Defense is there. Witnesses come up. And then the jury leaves. And after a short deliberation, they determine you're guilty. Placed on death row. Ready to die. In fact, your death is coming up very soon. And what took place is your family pleaded the President of the United States, pleaded Barack Obama, said, please, will you stay the execution? And by some means, the President takes interest in your case and by sheer act of mercy, He grants you a pardon. And you are free to go. Pardon is a a legal declaration from the President from his hands, it says, you are innocent. You won't be put to death for this crime. Never can the state bring up against you any more this crime. You don't need to spend any other, any more time in prison. You're free and forgiven, given life to live again. It's the first picture of the cross that we have. Perhaps the most important. Perhaps the most fundamental. It's the issue of justification. And the image of the President issuing a pardon is exactly what God has done for us in the cross of Christ. As you believe in His atoning work, God pronounces you righteous. Forms a declaration. Said you are righteous by faith. That's justification. Justification is the act by which God declares you to be righteous in His sight and free from guilt. The opposite of justification might be condemnation in which you would be declared guilty. But we who believe enjoy the blessing of justification. And many passages in all the Scriptures speak about justification. 1 Corinthians 6.11 You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or Galatians 3.8 The Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Or Titus 3.7, that we are justified by faith. We can go into many of those passages, but for the sake of at least going into one text, I want to take you to Romans chapter 4. You open your Bibles, go to Romans chapter 4. It's perhaps the best place in all the Scriptures to think about justification. What took place? The cross of Christ. The first eight verses put forth the example of Abraham being justified by faith. Then... 
we see uh, the blessing that comes upon the one who is justified as David speaks from Psalm 32. So Paul writes, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he is something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sin has been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Now this passage talks about how it is exactly that Abraham was justified. Was he made righteous before God based upon his own righteousness or was he made righteous another way? According to verse 2, if Abraham was justified by works, he'd have something to boast about. He could have said, hey, everyone, look at me. Look at my righteousness. I'm standing before God because I'm innocent in the way I have conducted myself. But Paul makes it clear based upon the Old Testament that Abraham was not justified based upon works of the law. Instead, as verse 3 says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And this is where the imagery that I gave of the presidential pardoning makes, makes so much sense. See, Abraham's righteousness was not innate. It was not in him. God didn't infuse him with the righteousness. Rather, he was a sinner like us all. He was a man holding the smoking gun. Guilty as charged. But God made a declaration. He declared that Abraham's faith would be taken into the accountant's ledger and credit to him as righteousness. So as Abraham believed, it was credited to him as righteousness. It's what the presidential pardon was. That we were guilty is evident to all. The jury found beyond a reasonable doubt that you had indeed pulled that trigger and that you indeed killed the victim. But, but, but the presidential pardon... The issue here isn't your guilt. It's His pardon to release you from sins. And so likewise here, the issue isn't the righteousness of Abraham. The issue is God's declaration. That is what justification is. Justifying us in His sight. As you continue on in verse 4 and 5, you see the logic. It said to the one who works, his wage is not credit as a favor, but what is due? But to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. I mean, every employee and every employer knows about what this is, right? You put in eight hours and you expect eight hours of pay coming back. When you receive your paycheck from your employer, you don't say, Oh, thank you for your generosity. I'm so thankful that you gave me this money. Oh, that's it's such a gift. Thank you. You don't say that, do you? No, and and you might thank him and say, thank you for being faithful to what we've promised. I put in my faithful day's wage and you have given me a faithful wage. Thank you. That's what it works. But regarding Abraham, it says that it's not based upon what's earned. Rather, it's based upon grace. It's it's, it's based upon his, his unmerited favor. See, the one who does... Who works, his wage isn't credit as a favor, what's due. 
But see, the one who doesn't work but just believes, it's credited to us only by His grace. It's credited as a favor. And there's great blessing upon us in light of justification. Look at David, what he said in verse 6. He speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. One whom the Lord credits as righteousness. He quotes here from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. There David realized the full extent of his forgiveness of his sins. He said, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. And I just ask you this, church family. Do you realize the blessing upon your life that comes by being made righteous through God's declaration that your faith has been credited as righteousness? Do you realize that blessing? I think if you're on death row and were released by the president, you'd realize the blessing. But do you realize the blessing that many of us know? Do you realize that, that your, your lawless deeds have been forgiven through faith in Christ? Do you realize that your sins have been covered through faith in Christ? Do you realize that, that our sins will not be imputed to us? In other words, the sins that we have committed by faith in Christ won't come upon us in condemnation. And I tell you, if you believe that and grasp that, this is the essence of the Gospel, it will be soul-liberating, joy-giving, and love-producing. I mean, there's nothing more that we want then than to worship and praise and serve our Lord. At this point, really, actually, there's some who cry foul. There are. There are people who hate this doctrine. They say, how is it that God can merely say we're righteous and consider it so, when in fact, in some measure, it's a lie because we aren't righteous? Because we're justified sinners. We are still sinful. And to these people, Romans chapter 3, verse 28, is a travesty. Paul says that we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And listen, this is the glories of the Gospel. We stand before God not on our own righteousness. Rather, our standing comes because we believe in Him and He justifies us. He declares us righteous. But some say, how can God justify the ungodly? How, how can God be righteous and yet say that sin won't be taken into account? Isn't, isn't that what righteous means? Isn't that what it means to be a just God, to punish sin? Well, the answer to that comes through the cross of Christ, comes in our next picture. We've seen justification. Now let's talk about redemption. Another picture of the cross. See, because a cross isn't merely about only justification. It's also about redemption. The picture of redemption takes us to the marketplace. You go to the grocery store to purchase an item and you have this coupon in your pocket. And you come and you take two boxes of Wheaties and you put a box of Wheaties up there on the counter and Betty's helping you out there at Walmart. You put that on there and, and then you put another one on there and you present this coupon and you buy the one. It says, buy one, get one free. You buy the one and you redeem the other. That's my price. I'm paying. Here's the ticket that's getting me this free box of Wheaties. That's what redemption is. It works with uh, things that we buy. It works with people. Your daughter's kidnapped. Taken away by some Muslim extremists. And the kidnappers are demanding a million dollars. You love your daughter and you talk to some insurance company. Somebody helps. You get a million dollars somehow. 
and you redeem your daughter. You pay that money to them and you redeem that life. And then you hope the police are going to capture them so you're going to get the money back. The insurance company hopes that too. But you could also redeem slaves. You look upon the stage and there are some slaves there being sold. And some are going for a high price, some are going for a, for a low price based upon how strong they look, how old they are, how young they are. And you could redeem a slave as well. You could pay that price, get that slave, and then set that slave free. You can redeem things. You can redeem people. And they all present to us well what the idea of redemption is. Redemption is a, is a cost, a price paid, money paid. And the metaphor that God used in the Bible to describe Christ's work is often redemption. Christ even said, Mark 10:45, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He's going to redeem many by His blood. Paul echoed that throughout his epistles. Titus 2.14 Jesus gave Himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify people for His own possession. Right? He gave Himself on the cross to buy us back. 1 Peter 1.18 You have been redeemed not with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal manner of life inherited from your forefathers, but you've been redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And, and the payment that, that Christ gave for our sins wasn't merely perishable things like gold or money. Rather, it was the imperishable, the precious life that He had. One of the best passages in the Bible that speaks about redemption is, is Galatians 3. It says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of a law, having become a curse for us. For as written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It tells how Christ redeemed us. He redeemed us by hanging on the cross, taking our punishment that we deserved. He became the curse that we deserved. Thereby, He redeemed us. He purchased us. In this way, God forgave us by faith. He let us go free. He paid a redemption price. It was His life for our life. We see that back in Romans 3. Just You can go back a little bit. Let's look there at verse 19 to catch the logic. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For through the law comes a knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here's justification. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And that's precisely where we say, hey, these people who cry foul, God just can't declare us free and forgiven. He can because He's got a, he's got a price in His pocket. And the price is the death of Christ. The law tells us, verse 19 and 20, of our sin and our failures to please the Lord. It tells us that we're not going to be justified by works of the law, but in verse 21, we see Christ breaking in. We see Him coming in to do for us what the law could never do, weak as it was. We're all sinners. We all have fallen short of the glory of God, but we who have fallen short are the very ones who are justified in His sight. 
It's a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And that's verse 24. And notice, uh, I love here how, how our, our redemption is a gift. It's a gift of grace. We haven't earned our redemption. We haven't earned it by the works of the law. It's been God who has paid the price to set us free from our slavery. Though, though it's free to us, it wasn't free to God. It cost Him infinitely. It cost Him the blood of His Son. And though we're justified by faith, it's not as if God is, is unjust, merely overlooking our transgressions. No, He paid for our sin through His blood. In fact, even it wasn't only our sin He paid for through His blood. He also paid for all the sins of the Old Testament saints that were committed as well. That's what it talks about here in the last half of verse 25. This was to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, He passed over sins previously committed. In other words, what happened when Abraham sinned? Where was the payment for his sin? Well, it was in the cross. But, but God hadn't died upon the cross yet. So what did He do? He just merely had to pass over that sin. He had to pass over it. And you could rightly accuse God of being unjust before the cross. I mean, in the fact of how the cross played out in history, of course you can't. But, but you say, how could you forgive Abraham? He sinned. He deserves punishment. How could you give, forgive David? He was a murderer, an adulterer, and a liar. How could you forgive him? And then it came the cross. In the forbearance of God, he passed over these sins. Just let them go. But then upon the cross, that's when He paid. He said, for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness. Right? Christ came to demonstrate His righteousness so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is just in declaring us righteous because Christ took the sin for us. And He is the justifier, meaning that He is the one who writes our bill of declared innocence. And all who cry foul because of God's declaration of righteousness upon a sinner don't understand fully that the price was paid. That, that our lives have been redeemed by Christ. And it's the accounting really that works on the back end. God declares us righteous and on the back end He deals with our sin through Christ. Here's a picture that might help. Perhaps you're, you're looking to buy a bicycle for your children, for your son. I want to buy him a nice, slick new 10-speed. But in light of the economy, struggling financially, you just don't know if you can do it or not. And, and one evening, you're sitting in your home, spending a quiet evening with your family playing Monopoly. right? And the, and the phone rings. And you say hello. And on the phone is the owner of the bike shop. He says, I've seen you looking over that bike. And uh, I see you want that bike for your son. And uh, you know what? I'm just, I'm just going to give it to you. I'm just gonna give, all you need to do is come tomorrow... Show up at 9 o'clock, take the bike, bring it to the counter, and just say, Bob will take care of it. Hangs up. They say, okay. You rise the next morning with your son. You take him to the bicycle shop. You choose the bike that you want. You bring it before the counter. And all you say is that Bob will take care of it. And you walk off with your bike. And there are people that are in the bike shop who might cry, foul. He just stole that bike. What is he doing? He didn't even pay for it. And yet on the back end, we know what took place. The boss of the store, the owner of the store, paid for the bicycle. It's a picture of the cross. It comes in this word, redemption. Christ paid for our sins. He bought us so we can stand rightly before God and God will not be 
unjust in any way. Well, we come now to our third picture. We've seen justification in the courtroom. We have seen redemption in the marketplace. And now we see propitiation. This word comes in the religious realm. Now, propitiation might not be the, uh, a commonly word, commonly used word for you. Uh, in fact, I, I doubt it is. The only reason I use it is just in light of the Bible. And every time I use it, I say, okay, what does propitiation mean again? And I gotta remind myself again of what propitiation is because we don't use it in our culture very much. But I heard one man say this, that his entire seminary education was worth the price of learning the meaning of this one word, propitiation. So listen up. That's what that was for. Verse 25, propitiation occurs. Romans 3, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Now some of your translations have an atoning sacrifice. It's okay. It's kind of sad because this word propitiation is really where the, the treasure is. The imagery of propitiation takes us into the religious world. It takes us actually into the, the shrine. It takes us into the, the altar. Nearly every religion in the world can relate, including Old Testament Judaism. Every religion deals with our standing before God. And, and every religion feels this tension that if I sin, there's something I need to do to, to appease God's anger with me because God is, is angry with me. And whether it's your God of all, like the Jews believed, or whether it's a Hindu God, or whether somehow religions have it that when we sin, we need to, to make it right with our gods or whatever. And so many world religions around will take an animal, kill it, place it upon an altar. And, and it's this animal is uh, sacrificed, hopefully then the idea is then that this appeases God. Shows that I'm earnest. I'm sacrificing. I'm sorry for my sin. And here it is. Will this appease your anger? That's propitiation. Turning the wrath of God away from you. And God is no longer angry with you. Rather, He's happy and ready to bless you. Since we don't live among a people who offer propitiatory sacrifices very often, we need a picture. Here's, here's a picture. I want to take you now to, to the highway. You're driving down the road. You're right out here on I-39. And you're going north. And uh, the problem is it is during the weekend. And uh, lots of people are going up north. And there's a, there's a traffic jam ahead, but your mind is on so many different things. The work you left. And you don't realize there's a traffic jam. In fact, it's not only just a traffic jam. It is a dead standstill. And you're cruising up the road at uh, 65 miles an hour. And they're stopped. And, and you realize it too late. You slam on your brakes and... You crash into the person in front of you. You pretty much destroy the front end of your car and the back end of their car. Now, fortunately, nobody was hurt. Unfortunately, though, the guy who you hit in front of you is very angry. He jumps out of his car and says, What have you done? You've just destroyed my brand new Lamborghini. He says, I purchased it $300,000 and now look at it. It's ruined. Pretty soon he begins to be so angry, he's attacking you physically and starts beating you. And saying, how could you do this? How could you do it? Did you see there was a traffic jam? And it's only the innocent bystanders that come by to pull this guy off of you. If they not pulled him off you, you'd have been in the, in the hospital. Such is his hatred towards you. And a few days later, he receives a call from your insurance company. Good thing you paid your dues. 
the representative from the insurance company told the man they're going to make things right. He says they would replace his Lamborghini. They will match any expenses that he has incurred in the meantime, even pay his rental car, even if he rents a Lamborghini also. Pay for any travel costs associated. He can even go to Italy on their bill, watch his Lamborghini being made, and make sure all the details are right. Any upgrades you want us to make on the car? All been satisfied. We'll pay the bill. And soon afterwards, you receive a call from this guy. And what do you think this guy's disposition towards you is? <laughs> hey, sorry for what I did to you the other day. But I just want you to know, I got a phone call from your insurance company. It's all fine now. They're going to great lengths to make sure that everything's going to be replaced. In fact, I didn't really want a blue one. I wanted a red one. But they didn't have a red one. And so, but I'm getting a red one now. Thank you very much. I will see you. Click. Fully satisfied. No more anger in this guy. That's propitiation. Where once he was angry at you because of wrongdoing, now there's happiness and joy and delight in him and in your relationship towards him. And I would say, that when you understand the cross and you understand propitiation, you understand God's change in disposition towards you, it ought to give you great joy in your life. Because the Scripture is clear. We are all born by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2.1. By nature, we are objects of God's wrath because Adam sinned. And we share in that because he was our federal head. But God's anger... And God's anger is towards those who reject Him. And those who reject His ways. Colossians 3.6 says, The wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. Yet the good news of the Gospel is this, that God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation through Jesus Christ. And we obtain our salvation through Christ who has appeased the wrath of God by becoming a propitiation in His blood. Christ Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God. That's what propitiation means. But but it means more than just He satisfied God. Not only has God been satisfied in the payment that's taken place in the cross of Christ, but, but He's happy towards us now. Because things have been resolved. His favor toward us is there. He is ready to bless us, sinners though we be. Propitiation transforms God's disposition towards us because it satisfies His wrath. He's not wrathful anymore. He is happy towards us because of everything that Christ did. While once God was angry, He's now pleased. And I've got one last picture this morning really to show you the scope of how far that relationship has gone and how far his attitude towards us has been. We've seen justification in the courtroom. We've seen redemption in the marketplace. We've seen propitiation in the religious realm. And now we look at, finally, fourthly, reconciliation. This takes us into the family. And again, like propitiation, it it, it depicts a transformation. Transformation from being enemies to being friends. All right, here's my picture. Here's a scenario, all right? Um, you have two neighbors that never really got along with each other. One took great meticulous care of his lawn, not a weed in sight, and the others, the other, the other neighbors, 
place looked like a junkyard. One was a, a night owl, and one had a job, had to get up at 3 o'clock every morning. It's a baker. Had to get up and cook all the pastries. One liked to party late into the night, which was hard because the one had to sleep early in the evening even. On one occasion, there's this tree that, that grew up over the lot line of this man's property. And uh, on one occasion, it was, it was growing over, and the one guy was concerned. It was leaning over kind of towards his house, and he talked to the other neighbor and said, I think you better cut that tree down. I said, no, I'm not going to cut that tree down. Well, I'm a fear it's going to fall. Well, it's not going to fall. Well, sure enough, one windy night, one windy night, that tree fell over and crushed the guy's house. You know, they weren't friends to start with, and they weren't friends after that big, long legal dispute trying to get the insurance company, trying to get that going. And then there was a dog. The neighbors bought a dog to protect their house. Bought a Rottweiler, much to the disapproval of the other neighbors. Because every time the, the neighbor's children walked by, the dog was just barking at them and barking at them, right? And so finally they had to build a fence around their, their yard, right? This big thing. They never even hardly saw each other. The, the, the capstone of it all was, though, that one time the dog got loose and attacked the neighbor's child, mauling it until it died. We've got neighbors here living 50 feet apart. And they're at enmity with each other because of the sin that had taken place. And, and they're just at each other. No forgiveness was ever extended. The animosity only increased over the years. Over the years, they'd vandalize each other's property. In fact, even one time, a neighbor tried to set fire to the other's home. Right? Just burning just a little back of it. It couldn't be proven, but that's what took place. Now, if ever there were enemies, these were enemies. And then... The daughter of the one fell in love with the son of the other. And this is, now, this is all make-believe story, right? But this is Romeo and Juliet turned good, right? This is the Capulets and the Montagues coming together in a, in a joyful way. Eventually, over time, through a series of events, eventually they were reconciled together to each other. And the families then were united in the marriage of the two children and they became one big happy family. And would you meet them today and watch them interact? You would never have known of the rift that existed between them. They have become such good friends. Sound far-fetched? Pretty much so. But that is reconciliation. Where once there's discord, now there's peace. Where once there's animosity, now there's harmony. Where once there was hatred, now there's goodwill. That's a picture of something that took place on the cross of Christ. Turn over to Romans 5. Try to take all my illustrations here. Romans 3 through 5. Romans 5 verse 6 begins to talk about this reconciliation that's taking place at the cross of Christ. For while we're still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man some would, would dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having now been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. These verses take us through a progression. Verse 6 speaks about how we are helpless, weak and impotent. 
Verse 8 brings the charge a bit more serious. In that verse, we're identified as being sinners. It means that we're rebelling against the Lord, taking no thought of Him into account. But in verse 10, it gets even more serious yet. It's not just we're helpless sinners, that we are hostile enemies toward Him. It means that our rebellion has turned hostile towards God. And yet, the great reality of a reconciliation is that now that we are reconciled to God through the death of His Son, that's what verse 10 says verbatim, we were enemies, now we are reconciled to God through the death of His Son. It means there's no more hostility between God and us. Through the cross of Christ, we're at peace with God, Romans 5.1. And the imagery here of, of reconciliation goes more than just at peace with God. There's a genuine relationship there that we have with God. God, infinite, almighty, pure, holy, has been reconciled through the mediator, Jesus Christ, through His death, burial, and resurrection to us so that now we have a genuine relationship with the Lord. We love Him because He first loved us. Our love to Him is genuine and His love for us is genuine as well. That's where the picture I painted of the warring families is appropriate. Right? Because, because God has, has made this, this, um, this relationship so much so that it's like a family bond. Bringing us together in the bonds of, of family. Built upon love. In fact, 1 John 3.1 says this, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. We are God's children, this family bond. Um, in, in the Bible, there's also another term which is kind of a subset of reconciliation. It's called uh, adoption. God has taken us into His family. We've become His children so much so that we can say, Abba, Father. We can call God Daddy because of our relationship. A reconciliation all took place, what took place through the cross. Listen to what J.I. Packer says about the reality of a reconciliation that culminates in adoption. This is a great quote. He says this, and you got to think, okay? Adoption, he says, is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Even higher than justification. That justification is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel is not, not in question. That's why I dealt with it first. Justification is the primary fundamental blessing of the Gospel. But that's not to say that justification is the highest blessing, Packer writes. He says adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that involves. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love, viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into His family and fellowship and establishes us as children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of this relationship. And here's the comparison. To be right with God as judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. That's Jay Packer. It's good. That's, that's the thrust of reconciliation. That's why I wanted to end with reconciliation. is to, to talk about this relationship and how, how far this animosity has gone to now reconcile us by faith to God. I want to close my message this morning by giving one last picture. As long as I'm giving stories here this morning, I want to give you this story. It's the story of the little orphan Annie. You all know this story. I trust many of you do. The Broadway musical Annie's this little orphan girl 
without parents. She's a poor orphan girl living in a dingy place, a smelly place, living with shabby clothes, being poorly treated by Miss Hannigan. And along came Daddy Warbucks, who's got everything. He owns a multi-billion dollar industry. He lives in a mansion. He travels the world. He has, he has the ear of the President of the United States. As the story goes on, the relationship between Daddy Warbucks and Annie strengthens to the point that Daddy Warbucks eventually adopts Annie. And the finale of the play says it all. It really describes the great blessing that comes, which once was apart, but now it's together. And I'm sure you know it as I read the words. <clears throat> Maybe we can sing it, right? Together at last. Sing it. Together forever. We're tying a knot. We never can sever. You guys are laughing. Let's sing this again, all right? <laughs> together at last, together forever. We're tying a knot that never can sever. Everything there is exactly true about God and us. And the comparison is very true about Little Orphan Annie and Daddy Warbucks. The comparison fits well there. There's great blessing there. And then Annie says, I'm as poor as a mouse. And Daddy Warbucks says, I'm as richer, I'm richer than Midas. And they say, but nothing on earth can ever divide us. I don't need anything but you. That's reconciliation. We were orphans who were reconciled to God Himself through the death, burial, and this morning resurrection of Jesus Christ. I ought to stir our hearts with joy. I ought to show you the multifaceted nature of the cross. That it's not merely God acting as judge, pronouncing us righteous. It's not merely God redeeming us by the price of His Son. It's not merely Christ propitiating the wrath of God in His blood. It's not merely only the reconciliation. It's all of those all combined together. And there are more pictures of what God has used to describe the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. And so this morning, I I simply end with this. May we rejoice in all that God has accomplished for us on the cross.